This podcast is powered by SEM Wealth Management. SEM Wealth Management, where your faith, your values, and your investments align. Great day, everyone. Ed Dudley coming at you from Durham, North Carolina. And today is a great day because, as you can see, you won't just be looking at Garland and myself, ugly mug, all day long. Garland actually put a hat on to cover up his bald head today. But, Easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd like to welcome our new co-host to the show, Miss Greer Rubley. How are you doing today, Greer? Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining. Thanks for being part of the team. Yeah, I'm excited. And and what you see here is what we really want to see more in the industry. People of color and women. And we all have shared our stories at one time on the show. um, And we're hoping that we can land a message that will bring more diversity to the industry. Hey, so my man Garland, what you got to say, buddy? Just cut to the chase. I mean, we we did a, we did an interview with Greer um, last week, and it was so good that we, you and I were both compelled uh, to not only invite her back on the show, but to invite her on the show um, because we realized we were really missing the mark when we were talking about women in our industry. We were trying our best, but we don't wear the skin. We don't have the same experiences. And so having Greer here is going to be hugely important, uh, particularly with our with our guest today, uh, Brooklyn Brock, who is also, I'm sure, having some of the same issues. Got a little bit of static. Is that me? I think so. Might be you. We can fix that. But go ahead, sir. That's all right. Make sure when she gets on, we're good to go. Um, it's going to be hugely important because Greer's going to ask better questions than we are. She's going to ask questions that she can relate to. We're going to try. I always try. But I think Brooklyn's going to be a wonderful guest because she does something that no other advisor that I have ever heard of in my life does. She is an advisor only for advisors. That's insane. And I can only imagine what kind of pushback she's getting. So, Ed, you want to bring her in? Let's bring her on in. Hi. Hello. Great day. Hey, Brooklyn. Good to see you. You'll have to update your uh, little logo with the two black bald guys in the corner to add Greer space in there. <laughs> oh, coming out the gates. <laughs> Good catch. Ooh. <laughs> oh, I love it. Greer, you can get started. You can you can get started with her if you like. Well, so yeah. Grilling so... me? Am I in the in the hot seat? It seems. Yeah, we're gonna turn on a bright light. Um, we're going to give you some stale chips, um, and a Coke and let you share. So I have Brooklyn. I don't even remember. Someone must've introduced us a few years ago, but, uh, we've known each other for a few years and, um, we had a bunch of really great conversations and we have a lot of interactions on LinkedIn. And then, uh, a few months ago, we actually started kind of like our own little side, what would you call it? It's uh, like a motivational group. There's three of us in it, three women in the industry. And we kind of just, we meet once a quarter 
and we just talk about our businesses and we talk about our goals and what we're doing to meet them. And I really, really enjoy those conversations. Um, I think that all women in this industry should have a support network of other women. And so, uh, yeah, Brooklyn, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do for this industry, because I think that it's so unique. Well, thanks for hyping me up so much. I <laughs> I go home at the end of the day and I'm like, oh, I wish I could be like Greer, but <laughs> uh, I guess a little bit about me. So I am a third generation advisor. I started with my family's firm. I was there for about five years and I saw my granddad essentially fail to retire, which is really hard to say um, because like I love him, right? <laughs> Um, but it was uh, the transition of the ownership of the business happened. But when it came time to say, okay, now you don't work here anymore, uh, that didn't go over so well. So um, I could talk more about that. But because that didn't happen, I didn't get the chance to be a successor. Like very few businesses pass to the third generation, um, family businesses especially. So um, I went off on my own and I launched Elevate Advisors and I have this like, I guess, hypothesis that I'm proving by still being here almost three years after launching uh, that if I can help with financial planning for advisors themselves, they will be able to retire more successfully and be happy about it, like actually enjoy retirement. So that's what I'm here to do. So the look on Ed's face is the look that I had the first time Brooklyn and I talked because I just didn't believe what she told me. I was like, well, that can't be accurate. So yeah, dive down a little more into that uh, because um, I've never heard of it. I, I want to know more and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners would love to know more as well. Yeah. So it's uh it's funny to like get that question because it's basically what every other advisor is doing. I just don't do it for anyone who walks in off the street. I have the screening criteria of like, one, you have to be an advisor. <laughs> um, I've, I've worked with a tax preparer in the past. It was an advisor who had a tax practice, but you know, a few exceptions like that here and there. Um, but advisors only uh, essentially is the model. And I basically do what every other advisor does. Um, Typically, there are other screening criteria that come into play around our core values uh, that kind of ring out as like an advisor would never reach out to us in the first place if they didn't meet our core values. So those are vulnerability, uh, growth mindset, and stewardship. So not thinking about your assets as supporting your own uh, selfish ends but thinking about the other people in your life and managing it to provide for your family, but also, you know, for other people, maybe after you're gone. So uh, that really weeds down the pool of advisors. I think there are like 400, 500,000 in the US and uh, a very small number of those share the core values and would even be open to asking for help. Um, so, yeah. How do you measure vulnerability? Mm. So we don't actually measure it. Okay. I kind of see it as if an advisor uh, even schedules a prospective client call to ask about our financial planning service, they are already demonstrating vulnerability. That's that's valid. That's valid. I want to go back though. So you third generation advisor. Yes. 
grandfather, your father, what made you want to leap into this industry? And what was your journey like in those early days um, as, a, as an early advisor? Like very early advisor, I was studying for the CFP and I was like, dang, if I ever have kids, I could teach them all of these very practical financial <laughs> knowledge about like stuff that they'll have to know for the rest of their life. So I was like, well, duh, I need this. My family will need this. Like I'm going to be an advisor. But the more that I did it working with my family's clients at the time, the more I was like, I don't like working with, like, I like the people. Don't get me wrong. Like I had friends from church and like people who had like known me my whole life. Um, but I was like, I don't want to do financial planning for the average person. It's not, I don't know, for some reason, it's not like fulfilling uh, to me. So I left my family's firm, moved on, was figuring out what I wanted to do. And I got more engaged with business owners. And then I attended the 2019 XYPN live conference in St. Louis. And Michael Kitsis was doing an Ask Me Anything session where he said, if you could, someone asked him, if you could launch any RIA firm, what niche would you focus on? And he said, financial advisors, because he knows that we can afford it based on our average income. And he knows that we need it based on like none of us retiring. Uh, so I was like, well, I, all of my friends and family are advisors. So that makes the marketing a little bit easier. feels like a, a business model that makes sense for me, but it's also what I'm really passionate about because I had to watch my granddad struggle through it. And I know that there are a lot of advisors that I won't be able to help, but it's the advisors who are entering the industry now who are my age, uh, who didn't grow up with the commission uh, kind of sales push that there was back in the day, who are entering the industry now with like, I can launch my own business and charge any way I want or be fee only and never sell anything. Like, however you want to do it, it really aligns better with the, like I need to take care of myself to be able to run the kind of business that makes me happy and having those kind of conversations it makes for an advisor who's healthier more well-balanced and open to financial planning as a concept i feel like i just ranted at you for a solid five no, minutes that's great that's, not, that's, I, not a rant. that's a mini i rant. love that i love <laughs> it so much because i feel like it's a little bit of i i think about my persona in this industry and what I contribute to this industry. And, you know, I help advisors with transitions, which is a very complicated and time consuming thing. Um, and when I do it, I, you know, I'm very structured in the way that I do it. I'm very organized. But then if you go behind the scenes and kind of look at me and the way that I run my business, like, you know, it's, it is not all rainbows and roses, like you open <laughs> it up and, and, and sometimes it's embarrassing. And I, I myself find it difficult to run my own business and my own life sometimes, but my job that I picked is, is managing the chaos of all these other people. And so I work with a, a coach, I work with consultants, you know, I, I am constantly trying to find other resources to help me figure my own stuff out. And so I feel like a lot of advisors out there could really use that for themselves because I have worked with a lot of advisors in the past and I, 
I can't tell you how many advisors don't know how to manage their own finances, even though they're telling other people how to manage their finances. And so I see all these advisors who are putting their clients in these portfolios and stuff. And I'm like, oh, where are your accounts? Oh, no, I don't. I don't manage my money like I manage my clients' money. Red flag, red flag, red flag. You know, like <laughs> I, if you're not, if you're not putting into practice the things that you are preaching to others, then, you know, what what are you, what are you doing, and then like what kind of message does that convey to your clients? And so, I am, I love what it is that you're doing. I it must be really difficult. I would love to know a little bit more about what you learned from your other families practice that made you do things differently in yours, not just from what you just said about um, the people that you work with, but kind of the tactics, just everything. Like, what did you see about their practices that you just really said, nope, that's not for me. Like, I'm going to do that a completely different way. Mm -hmm. Well, you touched on a few things that I want to uh, kind of reply back to before I answer your question, uh, which is, uh, yes, advisors, it's not so much that they don't know how to manage their own money because they totally know how to do that, right? You have the knowledge base, but part of it is the accountability. Like I've talked to some advisors who are like, yeah, I launched my own RA three years ago and still haven't gone around to rolling over my 401k. Um, so it's like, they just need someone to remind them, um, or someone to do it for them. I've had some advisors reach out and see if, and, you know, ask if I manage money. Um, and I'll get to that question in a minute, but it's also having time to do it. Like you said, being a business owner and having to manage everything, if there's something that you can outsource, your time is going to be more valuable spent in your business. So why would you not do that? But a lot of advisors don't see it that way. The ones that do, uh, do it for some of those reasons, but it's also like with the positive kind of goal here of bringing a spouse into the conversation. Um, a lot of times there's a, the financial advisor spouse who knows everything and does everything. And if something happened to them, where would their spouse be? Especially if there's a business involved that has to be transitioned, as you know. So um, I think you highlighted a lot of like the scary things about like advisors who aren't hiring their own planner or potentially uh, yeah, it, it has a lot of red flags, but there are also a lot of positive reasons that someone would want to hire their own advisor. Um, so I just wanted to like not bash advisors for a minute, like they're people too, and we all make mistakes and and I want to normalize that it's okay to like ask for help and and to hire someone to do this. Like doctors can't do heart surgery on themselves and we as advisors can totally have the same mindset and that's okay. That's good. It's funny. I was. Uh, I mentioned not by name, Brooklyn, but I mentioned your what you were doing at a symposium about three weeks ago, and the the, the presentation that I was giving is, is was behavioral finance based, and the point that I was driving at was that when we put people in the into these sort of four categories from conservative to aggressive, almost every time financial advisors land on the aggressive side, and it's because you know, they're pretty confident in what they're doing. Um, at times they can be overconfident. And the two questions that I asked are actually the things that Greer just said. I asked this to an audience. I said, well, 
would you guys ever let another advisor handle your personal assets? And it was a, it was not even a no, it was a groan in the room. It was like, oh, what? Why? It was that was the attitude, right? And like, oh my goodness. And then the and then it was sort of a catch, a trap, because then I said, okay, well, you guys give all this great advice to your clients. How many of you follow it or even come close to following it? And all the hands went down, right? Everyone's like, ah, because Greer is right. Like the, the overconfident behavioral part of, of the mindset says, I don't need to do what I'm telling all these other people to do. I can do this myself. I do this for a living. I've been through two recessions or three recessions. My question then is how in the world do you deal with that kind of, I don't want to call it error, that's unfair, but that kind of attitude right from the very first interaction that you're going to have. Because at the end of the day, the, what comes along with being aggressive and being overconfident is also very protective of what you're doing and very mm -hmm. defensive about what you're doing. So I would imagine those two things probably intersect at some point. Mm -hmm. So my approach to that, I think, is to say that I as an advisor am limiting myself to the number of clients that I'm going to service. And I do not have to put myself in the position of trying to sell what I do to someone who obviously doesn't want it, who doesn't align with the core values. If they're that much set against it, like there are 499,000 other advisors out there that I could be talking to. Um, it's just important that they know what I do. So if they change their mind, I'll be here. And um, and just getting the word out, I do get a ton of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> uh, blank stares more often than not. Once a year, someone will say to my face something that is, it can be interpreted as pretty rude, I think. Um, comments like, uh, I could never think of a single advisor who would ever hire you. Or like questions like, how are you still in business? Like, I would never refer another advisor to work with you. And that's, uh, that happens somewhat infrequently. So it doesn't get me down. And I just kind of laugh at them because I'm still here. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's no skin off my nose. But uh, yeah, I think there is a whole cohort of advisors who are against the idea. And then there's a whole cohort of advisors that I interact with um, who want to bring me on their podcast um, because there is a place for it. And those are the people that I'm looking for. But I do so, want to, I want to come back to your question, Greer. Um, but I don't know who to like, Ed, do we do your question first and then I'll circle back? No, to go, go, go answer Greer's <laughs> question first. Ladies first. Okay. <laughs> so things that I learned from my family's firm that made me do things differently in my firm I think some of those things were because my family was with a broker dealer who shall remain nameless. Um, <laughs> so there were some things about the broker dealer world that weren't the best fit for me. Um, they set the pricing for what you could charge for investment management and financial planning, um, which I didn't like because it put the range that I could charge for financial planning way below what the service is worth, in my opinion. So um, it also put the weight of the fees 
uh, primarily on the investment management, which is the traditional way to do it. And it's a way that clients are most often comfortable with because they don't see the fees being charged. And um, it's, it's just easier for everyone all around. I acknowledge that. Um, but I, I did not see the benefit of as much active management as my family chose to do. They had different account structures available at the broker dealer and they chose to do some that were more active than I believed was necessary based on my research. The more I became knowledgeable as an advisor, the more I was like, eh, passive management is <laughs> long, in the long run, that's uh, gonna pay off for my clients, I think. Um, I Maybe this is like me being a woman, I don't know, but I would never think that I could outperform all of the other money managers out there over the long run and beat the market. So like, I don't think anyone else can do it either. Um, so yeah, that's not a game I want to play in. So I had such a, I just got so burned out over all of the trades and the, the fee structure and everything. So I decided I set a goal for myself that I have been able to maintain thus far that I never want to place another trade in a client's account. So I do not offer investment management for my firm right now because I was like, well, every advisor wants to manage their own money anyway. They'll just manage it the way they're managing their own clients' money. And to your point, Greer, that is uh, not always happening. Um, <laughs> but I think the real work is in the financial planning because in financial planning, you can't always see yourself objectively and you may not be projecting your plan based on reasonable assumptions. I've seen some advisors who hand their plan over to me and they've cut corners or they've excluded the value of their business and it throws everything off and it makes them feel guilty if they're not on track because they don't plan to like for a sale of the business, which will actually happen. So like, let's be realistic here. Um, it's one thing to be conservative, but it's another to like not plan your plan like it would be in real life. Um, and then some advisors, I don't know that it's just, um, financial planning is something that's better done with someone else instead of doing it for yourself. You can always Google something that's quick and easy, like what's the max that I can contribute to my IRA? Like that's not a full comprehensive financial plan. To do the full comprehensive financial plan for yourself and your spouse, it's really working with someone else um, because the relationship is similar to that of a counselor or a therapist where it's a journey of self-discovery and to figure out what really makes you happy in life and in business, um, someone sometimes has to pull those things out of you. So that's um, where the value lies, in my opinion, in financial services. The investment management is more like a transactional service. And I will add it on someday because I'm working with like 50% of my clients are actually near retirement. So if they sell their business and they don't want their buyer to manage their money, where are they going to go? Um, especially if something happens to the advisor spouse who would the non-advisor spouse work with. So I'll probably add that, but hire someone to run the investment management side since I don't, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so that's like so, a high level answer. Yeah. So I want to switch gears on you a little bit. First of all, you're a, you're a, you're a little different because you grew up in a multi-generational um, home that were financial advisors. Based on what you saw growing up, how's your journey been different than that of your grandfather's? And I believe it was your father that was an advisor as well. How do you mm -hmm. think your journey has been different than each of theirs, especially as a woman? Mm, I've never gotten that question before. Um, 
I think my granddad approached his business. Um, he started with a financial plan for himself and he decided he had to be successful enough to make enough money every year to save for his own retirement and reach the level of retirement savings that he would be able to gift the business to his sons. So it was my dad and uncle who co-owned it. They were both advisors. And also he had to make enough money to take my family on vacation every year for 10 years before he invited them to join the practice because uh, they had gone off and started their careers and their families elsewhere and they didn't have a relationship, uh, my grandparents and my parents. So they had to rebuild that. And so my granddad took this like 20 year approach and set some really unrealistic goals for himself that I never would have been able to accomplish of like, I have to sell myself and these services to make this work. And he did it. And I take a totally different approach to my business. Like I, like I said, like, I'm not going to put my position myself in the position of selling something to someone that they don't want or need. And, um, I don't know that my granddad ever did anything like illegal or wrong in selling stuff to people. It was stuff that they needed. Um, but even that mindset, the approach to the business, I think I do it differently because of, I mean, the industry is different. I am a woman. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman, but you never really know these things. Um, but my dad actually started in the industry as an actuary. So when my granddad made the offer of like, if you move your family to Tulsa, I will gift you half the business. Um, he was coming from a world where he designed the products that then he would get to sell to people in real life. And um, actuaries tend to have this, uh, there's maybe a stigma around them that they are not people persons. <laughs> they're not people people. Um, they're not good with people. So I think my dad is on the more like friendly extroverted end of that spectrum, but he saw the same kind of like, I don't know, not the best with people character traits in me. So he actually told me that I should not become an advisor because he felt so much pressure to get out there in front of people and do the business and the sales the way that my granddad did it, um, that he didn't want me to have to conform to a way of life that's so outside of what is comfortable for me that it would make me unhappy as a career decision. And I, I have changed my methods to fit how I wanna do sales and marketing. Um, I think the world has changed and my, my dad maybe felt pressure to do it the way that my granddad did it. I remember my granddad saying one time, it takes seven prospective client meetings to close one client. And I think because my approach is different, I chose to do this niche. And part of my decision-making in choosing this niche or really any niche is that if you have a niche, you have a higher close rate because people know exactly what you do and they know exactly what they're looking for when they schedule a call with you. So I didn't want to have to do it that way. Um, so yeah, that, I, I think that answers your question. Yeah. So real quick follow-up. So your dad tried to convince you not to go in the industry. This yeah. says, don't do it, mm -hmm. but you did it anyway. Why? Um, I liked the financial planning piece, I think was the foundation and it felt really practical. And I knew that I am 50% introverted, 50% extroverted. And how that shows up in my business is that I can do zoom calls 
eight, 10, 12 hours a day. If I had to meet with people in my office like that, I would die. <laughs> so like I, I can do my business virtually. That works for me. That wasn't an option when my granddad launched or when my dad started. So, I mean, the world has changed, but to be able to even talk to people and explain myself and these complex financial topics, I knew that I had to get some training. So I did Toastmasters for a few years. Um, and now I speak at various conferences around the country. I think I've been to four conferences this year speaking on things. So, um, and podcasts like this all the time. Yesterday I was on a TV show that airs in New Jersey. So it's now I get a ton of practice and, and I'm starting to get more of my own clients. So it's not an issue anymore. I think between like the working virtually and, um, and the training that I put myself through, I've overcome what my dad kind of warned me against or the reasons why he warned me not to do it. I have a question about that because I had a similar experience growing up. My dad was, my dad owned a liquor store. And so he, uh, it, and it was not in a great part of town. So he worked a lot. Um, you know, like you work in a liquor store, you, you own a liquor store in a bad part of town. It's hard to hire and to like find trustworthy employees and to kind of outsource a lot of your business. And so he, he worked a lot. He didn't get to go on a ton of vacations with us when we were young, stuff like that, you know, like there were, I remember very clearly a couple times in the middle of the night where he would get calls because the alarm was going off at the store and he'd have to get up in the middle of the night and drive over there to meet the cops. And so like when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, um, you know, like I, my, my parents were very hesitant. They didn't want me to, to go into anything that was anything like, you know, they didn't want me to own a business or anything. They didn't want me to do anything that they had done because it was not a great experience for them. And so they were kind of trying to protect me from having the same experience that they had, but also kind of didn't realize that they were doing a little bit of damage in that and, you know, in saying, go get a job, go take whatever money they offer you, just like, go take the job, go work hard, work your way up. But, you know, like I landed in the financial services industry as a client service associate as my first job. And it's very, very difficult to work your way up from client service associate in the financial services industry as a 22 year old female into anything really significant, uh, you know, it's done, it's done, but it's not easy. And so I think my experience in this industry was a little bit more difficult than I would have liked. And then eventually I did end up starting my own business and now I'm running my own business and, and, but I'm still trying to overcome some of the obstacles that were created by that mindset that was put on me by my parents who had some struggles in owning a business. And so I feel like generationally, I am struggling with some of the same things. So like, yes, I guess they were kind of right at some, you know, in some ways like, oh, like we're trying to protect you from these things. But at the same time, I'm like, if, if it had been approached differently, I might've had a different experience than them, but I'm kind of struggling through that now, but I'm really trying to, to kind of get out of that mindset. So I'm, I'm 
intrigued by your story because you still ended up doing the thing that they warned you against and um you know you're doing it differently and you're doing it your own way so i'm i don't know that there's really even a question there it just resonated with me <laughs> quite well, a bit it's, a, it's a total counterculture because you know your grandfather's talking about seven seven meetings to close a client and i remember being taught that as a wholesaler like seven meetings we didn't get this down to five meetings and be more productive and so you know, what our industry was for a million years was effectively really good salespeople. Just say, hey, listen, buy XYZ company and here's why I did my, my firm did the research and I'm, I sell a thousand shares. And I can visualize your grandfather with the yellow ledger and 25 names on that page of who he's calling that morning and selling those stocks to. And mm -hmm. next day, 20 more names of who he's going to buy that stock from. And it's just different. And for you to come in, you know, you started, when did you get into this, into the industry, Brooklyn? I think I started at my family's firm, scanning papers 40 hours a week in 2014. Yeah. So think about that. You're fighting, you're fighting the entirety of history. And then in 2014, 2015, 2016, you're making a decision. Okay. The way that the old guard is telling me to do this is horrifying yeah. to me. There has to be a better way and big shouts to Toastmasters, the CFP, the CKA, because those are the things, those are the tools you used to, you know, to evolve. That's the only word I can think of. It's an evolution. And I, because of, you know, the, the length of time I've been in this business, I have a foot in both doors. Like I came into this business, like sell, 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 sell you know, wirehouses, wirehouses, wirehouses. And now I'm over here with the, my other foot in the door going, thank goodness I don't have to take laps around the office building anymore and pretend like I'm interested in this advisor's American funds, excuse my, I'm not used to supposed to use names here, versus whatever <laughs> fund family that I'm selling. And, uh, and that planners seem to be the next generation of this thing that we're doing. I also like the fact that you, you you created your value that's outside of the price of a, an, an investment. And it's something that I didn't know how we were going to be able to do it. And it, obviously it's people like you that are going to do it. Um, tell me, ask me, answer this question for me. What was, what was the stat I gave you Greer it was, I think it was 9% of CFPs are minorities. Less than 9%. Less than 9% minority, less than 4% are women CFPs. You, you have both your CFP, you have a bunch of letters down there, um, <laughs> alphabet soup that we're looking at. When you hear those numbers, still, and I'll use that word still, because those were the same numbers 25 years ago when I was, was trying to figure this whole thing out myself. And those numbers have not moved. And they're persistently bad. Why do you think that is? And what do you think we, all of us, can do to try to make those numbers better? Hmm. I think we have a really great opportunity because I was listening to everything you're saying and I'm like, yeah, and that's because <laughs> um, a few things. Like one, the next generation like are becoming influencers on social media. Like they make up their career, whatever makes them passionate or excited to get up in the morning, like they go make a job out of that and make money. And if 
if young people today knew that they could do that in financial planning, I think there would be more businesses like mine. I think mine is like part of the wave of businesses that are coming of like this business represents who I am as a person. And I could do this for the rest of my life and never feel like I work another day. Yeah, I can and, really imagine if we had a podcast where we could tell people that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's like, it's partly, it's partly the generational thing, but it's also, I think, um, like I chose to do this because I'm an Enneagram four, which means I'm constantly like, I cannot escape the fact that who I am means that I must always seek out my authentic self and do that no matter what the cost. So, so sometimes that sabotages me because um, I don't always do things that make the most money, but I'm in it for the long run and I think it'll work. Okay. So a hands. bunch of hands go up when you said, when you said that. I wish I could be you more are, like that. Really. Okay. You are a anagram four. Yes. Okay. What scale is you, that on? You would, yeah, you want to take us through whatever oh. that is. Uh, all of the anagram numbers, I will not explain on this podcast. Um, okay. You can do a Google search, anagram numbers one through nine. Which one most uh, do you most identify with? And I, my favorite book about the Enneagram is, I can't remember the title, but it's by Ian Morgan Cron. And you can find it. It has like a yellow cover. You can find it on Amazon. I bought that book and read through it. And I was like, oh, I will identify a little bit with this one, a little bit with that one. But this one is m the most me. Um, and the more that I know who I am, the easier it is to make decisions about what I want in my life and in my business. Um, so I think part of the reason I chose this niche is because of that. But also I have to say, I love the new picture in the corner. <laughs> Congratulations, Greer. I'm there. <laughs> Garland made a face about it early on. He's sitting there. He, if you saw Garland, he just wanted these numbers. When I leaned in. As you get a little <laughs> older, you know. You know yeah, I'm not going to lead it. Yeah, but I <laughs> popped up on my screen and said, wait a minute, that's Greer. <laughs> so that's, that's going to be the logo going forward. <laughs> I want to go back to one thing that you said that actually really um, intrigued me and resonated with me a little bit. And that is the, the new generation. Um, they're basically, I feel like each generation is kind of, you're in kind of one or the other category. Like either you are taking all of your advice from the prior, the prior, um, your parents and everything and you're going out and you're trying to do it that way or you're going no that's obviously not working and not the way that i want to do it and doing it a complete opposite way so there's this whole generation of kids that are growing up now that are making money doing things on social media being their authentic selves on social media and resonating with a lot of other individuals and creating a business out of that which is so interesting to me because I feel like I am slowly trying to do that myself, but I am, you know, I'm a millennial and I, it's taking, it's taken me two decades to really figure out who my authentic self is and to be comfortable putting it out there for people to consume and being able to combat some of the resistance to it especially in this industry, as I am one of the 4% uh, women in the industry, and I am putting things out there that aren't necessarily resonating with the majority, but they are resonating with 
the minority that is like me. And I find that extremely invigorating and important for this industry to kind of say, you know, it doesn't have to be done this way. You can actually do it differently. You can bring creativity into it. You can bring feminism into it. And because you're doing it differently and because you're presenting it differently, it will be successful in the way that you want it to be successful because you are going to find your people. You're not trying to battle with all the other people for the regular masses. You are targeting a certain demographic of people and it's going to be really easy for you to find those people and for those people to find you if you're crafting your message to reach those people and you aren't caring about all of the others. And I think that that is definitely interesting and not something that a lot of financial advisors do. Like a lot of financial advisors, they grew up with that sales mindset. So it was like the tactics were to sell to whoever, regardless of what their actual needs are. And like you said, not, not in a like way that is supposed to be illegal or anything, but just like a sales tactics are a different way to do business. Like once somebody gives some sort of resistance, you have a way to say, oh, you know, to turn it around on them and to to get them agreed to it. And I, it took me a really long time also. I hate being sold to. Some people love it. I can't stand it. So if you start so selling neat. to me, it's almost immediately that I'm going to like end the conversation and not call you back. I'm the opposite. Sell me this pen. Sell me this pen. <laughs> oh, I couldn't. It's yeah. so painful. But you know, it's interesting when my, when I was launching, I ran the niche idea by my family and they were like, why would you say no to everyone who's not an advisor? Like you're, you're turning away money. And like, I was totally sold on the niche concept. I was like, well, even if it's an experiment that fails, like I have to try it because it's so me. Um, But I just did a session for NAPFA on my niching decision and story and like why I chose to do that. And it's really interesting. I could go on and on about it, but yeah, it is a a decision of like, why would you niche? Do you have to niche? How to niche in a way that's right for you? It's uh, definitely a a journey of self-discovery that you have to go on there, Greer. I think you're you're doing it too. Again, it's an evolution. I mean, even, I mean, look, look at the way that the world's viewing unemployment right now. They, they are flabbergasted that people aren't running back to whatever minimum wage job that they had before COVID. And when I even say things like, you don't understand, there's a lot of gig outfits that are out there now. And there's a lot of content providers that are sustaining themselves. And people look at me like, well, that's, that's not going to last. And so there is our industry. I think Greer, you said it last week, 10 years behind, you might be short selling that. I think we may be like 15 or 20 years behind you know, what normal society, how, how they've evolved and, and grown financial, the financial services industry seems to cling to what they know. And this is why we have, well, why we've had both Greer and Brooklyn on this podcast, because we are trying to get beyond that and, and let people, one of Ed's goals in the very beginning, the very first day we talked about this, he says, there has to be a person out there that sees this podcast, listens to one of our guests and says, okay, I can do that. I can definitely do that. And Brooklyn, it sounds like you are, I mean, you're kind of all over the map right now, projecting, you know, who you are. And, you know, you're at Anagram 4. I had no idea what the heck that meant for 10 minutes ago. And, and, but you're making it work. You're making it work. 
where do you see your business? I don't know, 10 years from now. Mm. Well, to, to answer the second half of one of your earlier questions, like how do we welcome the next generation into this industry in a way that helps them like do it in a way that's satisfying for them? Um, I am a huge proponent of internships, of helping more advisors figure out how to do internships on a regular basis. Um, so I've helped one of my clients build an internship program where she gets a new person in every six months. And they're basically like, people in college or recent graduates or career changers who don't have the chance, like no one's giving them the opportunity to get started. Um, so I've, I've designed that for her. It's part of her long-term succession plan. So it falls under my umbrella of exit coaching. Um, but I think that's probably the what I would try to do as part of my tech, next 10-year plan. There's our segue there, your next there you question. Go. Well, um, let me ask you this, because my firm is doing something similarly, and we're doing it very, very, very poorly. Um, we, well, we believe, well, here's, here's sometimes how we work in my, in my firm, and I love my firm to death, but sometimes we go, let's do this, and then we just go start doing it. And that's kind of what this is. And we've gone, we've reached out to some colleges in Virginia, and we've formed some good partnerships, actually. I think you, do you know Dr. Kurt Cornfield, per chance? I did not. Yeah. He's, uh, he's at Liberty University. Anyway, not the point. We need some structure around how to actually make that happen. Can you give me some more detail on how you're helping this client do that? Yeah. So it depends on the resources that you have available. So yeah. my client is a small uh, solo firm owner. I say solo in that she's the only owner. I guess it's not technically solo because she has a few part-time uh, employees. Um, so, but she does, she doesn't have the bandwidth. The point is she doesn't have the, the financial resources available to have like a whole HR team built out that would design this for her. Right. Um, so we're kind of winging it. I think I would say we may not have implemented it any better than you have because there is so much to learn this was our first time to ever design any kind of internship program, especially one that's the perfect fit for her and how she wants to do internships. Like we're learning a lot. So okay. I could share what I've learned, but I am not by any means like an HR expert. And if you have an HR expert on your team, which we were able to find for her this past summer, um, that person can fix anything that you built that is not really uh, the way it should be. Um, so what we built originally was not including that HR person. So what we built was four workflows. The first one is the job posting. So you have to figure out where you want to post the job. Um, you can kind of dial back where you, the number of places you have to post it to get candidates once you know which sources bring in the most number of the best candidates. Um, so we just kind of like a, we posted it everywhere and now we're figuring that part out. And then after the job posting we had, I think the second interview was the interview process. So it would take uh, from the day that the job posting closed, we would review all applications. We would pick a certain percentage of those to go onto the first interview. And I think we had 30 applicants, primarily from Simply Paraplanner. That's been our best resource. Um, and it was a paid internship. I think that would be, if you want a successful internship, make it paid. Um, so we limited the number of candidates passing on to the first and then the second round of interviews. And then um, we would make sure there were only like three going into like, okay, who do we make this offer to? So we had interview agendas for each of those. 
we would evaluate people based on an evaluation rubric that we built for her team specifically based on um, the internship objectives, which were in the job description and her company's core values. And then we've also, um, before we did the internship program, I helped her implement traction using the software uh, 90.io. So we follow traction's EOS process. So um, we also screen based on like the, do you get the job? Do you get it? Do you want the job? Uh, do you want it at like the compensation that we're offering for the hours of week that, you know, hours per week that we're offering? Do you have the capacity to do it? Um, to do the job on top of your workload or whatever. So we screen on all these criteria. And then I have, I totally ripped off this resource from my CKA education, um, where you have this decision-making matrix where you put in uh, those screening criteria and you rate them based on how important they are. And then you put in the candidates in the columns across the top and you say, do they meet this criteria? Yes or no. And it gives you a sum total at the bottom for each, each candidate. And it tells you mathematically who you should hire. And then you take that feedback and, and do a gut check and, and make the offer. So that was the second workflow. Third one is um, the offer and the onboarding. So all of the employment documents that have to be signed. And then the fourth one is their training. And at first we built to be uh, like a week by week for the whole six months of the internship. And we're dialing that back now that we're entering the second phase. We're just going to do like two weeks of intensive technology training. Like let's get you up to speed and then hand you off to like train one-on-one -on -one with the individual team members. So um, we're learning a lot of stuff. It's always changing. Um, I don't think you understand what the phrase winging it means. That's not winging it. <laughs> what, what I said- We have very different it. definitions of winging it. <laughs> but that's I don't think the definition. end result is any better doing it my way. Like. We try, but um, yes, absolutely. I 100% it would be a different but, result than me winging it. I was trying to take notes. I couldn't keep pace with with. I was like, well, wait, phase two. What was phase two again? Well, you, you can perfect. watch the podcast later. Yeah, no, that was perfect because it gave us this like insight into how your brain works and how you work oh, yeah. with your clients on something and what you define as winging it is actually a very like methodical very like research mathematical based way of doing things which is oh. exactly what i would want in someone that was my financial planner if i was a financial planner <laughs> it, you do have this comfortable sort of balance between academic um i don't think very prepared i mean of anybody i've talked to you seem to be sort of the most prepared going into a situation a lot of research up front as Greer said and then you know your follow-through is incredible so it's I mean this is I'm, I'm learning things as we speak I literally have notepads worth of look I'm not kidding <laughs> notepads worth of stuff I'm writing down <laughs> as you're talking so Ed what do you got so Brooklyn as you know because I like to be respectful of time as we're you know getting uh to almost an hour so you're standing on the stage you got a bunch of millennial women that are not in the profession. What do you say to them to convince them to look at this as a viable profession for them? I love how I get her to think. Mm -hmm. um, I talked with a few young advisors at the Investment News Women Advisor Summit in Denver this past summer. 
and we had a lot of similar conversations. I think the fears or concerns that I heard from a lot of women were that there's no work-life balance and they didn't want to enter the industry if they were going to have to work like 60 plus hours a week. And so I told them, you don't have to work 60 plus hours a week. You have to set goals for yourself that are the right fit for you. And to achieve those goals, you can decide if it's worth it to work 60 plus hours a week. Because I had to, to get where I am when I entered the industry scanning papers in 2014, like it's been less than 10 years, um, but I've worked like pretty dang hard and I put in a lot of hours and I still do. My business is still really young and I haven't seen the financial payoff for that yet. I think that was the other concern is like, is the money there? And you don't have to do it the way that I did it. I chose to do it this way. If your goal is to make X salary, uh, there are other ways to get there faster than what I chose. So it's more about knowing who you are and what you want out of life and then plot the course to get there. So I guess my like end recommendation would be uh, to have someone do your financial plan because like, how are you, how are you supposed to do it on your own? Like, um, that's kind of my thing, you know, and it doesn't mean hiring me. Like you can sit down and like walk through this with someone in your financial planning classes or with another colleague and do it for each other. Like there's different kinds of financial planning for different reasons. Um, it's not like me just trying to sell myself on this podcast, but, um, I do think the exercise is worthwhile, um, to learn about yourself and what you want. Thank you. Garland awesome. Greer, some closing comments. Well, this has been great. Brooklyn, thank you so much for, for joining the three of us. Can I ask a closing question, actually? Yes, yes, you can. I would be super curious as to your answers, but also like your emotional reaction when I ask this question. Have you ever hired your own financial advisor? Why or why not? I just told you I'm old school, so no. <laughs> <laughs> to, be, to be honest, uh -huh. I, didn't know you, I didn't know you existed. You are a mythical unicorn. Um, and it's funny because I do a lot of, I do a lot of public speaking about, you know, behavioral finance. I mentioned that earlier and I always use the same analogies that you are using. I always use the sports ones, you know, even Tiger Woods has a swing coach, that kind of stuff. Even Kobe Bryant had a shooting, a shooting coach. And it's funny. So I am exactly where I'm lecturing my audience to be at times where I'm don't do as I don't, don't what's, what's the phrase? Do as I say, not, not as I do. Not as I do. Yes. Totally guilty about that. So that's, you that's know, me. I, I, I'm in the same boat. And I think if you look at individuals of a certain age, uh, in the industry, we do the same thing. Garland and I no different than your father, your grandfather, your uncle. We can do it. We got it. Yep. And we don't, we never see our blind spots. Ever, because yeah. they don't exist in our in our heads. They don't exist. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was a great question. I I have hired a financial advisor, and I know I am not one. I work with them, but you know I've worked with a ton a ton of advisors in my past, and most of the time it's just been a hey, you know, oh sure, yeah, go ahead, transfer your Roth IRA over, and we'll just make sure that we contribute contribute to it once a year. But um, 
after I started my own business, I actually moved all of my money and started uh, with a financial planner who was one of my original first clients of my business. And I chose him because he was doing things very differently than all of the advisors I had ever worked with before. That It was a focus on financial planning instead of asset management. It was a focus on like the whole picture. You know, they he had like a three page document that said, these are all the things that you need to send me in order for me to understand the full picture. And um, so, yeah, I, I definitely work with a planner and I chose that planner specifically for the um, the resources that they provided and the education and the support and and not the asset management at all whatsoever. Is it ironic that the two men don't have plans and the two women do? <laughs> so I'm going to simply say this. After the years of wholesaling and some other things, and I'm not biased at all. However, <laughs> women make the best planners point blank. I've yeah, talked to too many men, too many women. Women make the best financial planners, advisors. They they listen more, completely listen more. Would you say? You know, Com- I, <laughs> you I say want to. Sorry, go ahead. No, we're just being we're just go to you now. Go ahead, Brooklyn. Well, I, I just laugh because I have like fifty percent of my clients end up being female, which is not representative of how many female advisors there are compared to men in the industry. So I think that is similar to what you were saying. But I also, I don't know if I'm shooting myself in the foot here by being a female advisor in this niche, would other male advisors not want to open up to me? I think I am the best person to be doing this as a woman. Um, But I think it may be holding people back from getting comfortable with me, which is I mean, I'm not going to change what I do. I can't I'm not, I'm not going to change gender. Sorry. Uh, But yeah, we didn't even we didn't even get to that. And and that frankly is that might be part two. Ed. That's that's <laughs> a big part of kind of what this is, because there is, you know, men have we have egos and, you know, and, and though they're they're very wide and they cover a lot of radius they are also very thin and they could be, you know, they can be punctured really easily. And I think this goes along those lines. I mean, I'll tell you that the, the audience that I was speaking to when I mentioned you know, someone that's managing advisors' assets were mostly men. And when I'm telling you, it was it wasn't like, well, no, it was a, it was it was a groan. I dare you, audience <laughs> groan. Like, yeah. how dare you? And I I didn't even mention that you were a you know sort of a next gen millennial woman. I can't even imagine what would have happened if I probably got booed off the stage if I'd have mentioned that. They part. would have collectively lost their stuff. I so, know, right? It's crazy. So it's that's and that might be that might be part two because I think there I think that dynamic is there. Yeah, um, completely there. If your if your practice is 50-50 men versus women, and we know that women are only you know at generously four percent of this industry, then that's telling you that there's a lot of men out there that are going, nah, I'm good. Thank you, Brooklyn. Yeah. How how are you still in business? I don't know how you're still in business, right? Exactly. <laughs> but I can see that I can see men asking that stupid question with yeah. Renault with all sincerity. Yeah. That's Has a woman ever said that to you, Brooklyn? Has it ever been a woman that has said, I don't never. know why you would run your business like that? It's never no. gonna survive. 
No, they get, they hear me say that and they are like so offended on my behalf. I get it enough they start that to it rally. me. Yeah. And then they like, they, I get, I think I get more referrals from women. Um, there's just something about like the sisterhood. I don't know. <laughs> yep. Unbelievable. So Brooklyn, on behalf of Greer and Garland, we want to thank you for affording us some of your time. Like Garland said, there will be a part two because we want to unpack, unpack some other stuff as well. Thank you, everyone that tuned in. We'll be listening to this. Um, Brooklyn, if advisor that's listening to this wants to reach out to them, how do they find you? We just updated our website. It's beautiful. Go check it out. Uh, we have now a glorious services page that specifies like the financial planning, how we do it, how we charge, and the exit coaching, how we do it, how we charge. So you can find links on there to schedule with me, um, or I'm on like every social media platform, I guess, except TikTok. That'll be the next one. You got to get on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's, your, what's your site address? Oh, elevateadvisors.com. And that's elevate with two L's. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you once again for tuning in. Thank you for being here. Thank you for all that you're doing. You got me sitting over here thinking, uh, do I need to find me an advisor? Oh, trust me. If I had an advisor, it would definitely be a woman advisor. Interesting. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I, I spend a lot of time alone around a, a lot of them. Uh, men and women, and I would definitely go with the women. But that's to be continued. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We really appreciate you. Until next time, this has been the journey of Brooklyn Rock. Take care, everybody. Thanks, guys. <laughs>